0: Frequently run the play clock down a lot. In the end zone, touchdown, Jalen McMillan. 19 yards and the Huskies lead for the fourth time tonight. Michael Penix, Jr., the Washington quarterback, 29-38 for 430 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions, no sacks taken in a game in which he ended up with his highest ESPN QBR number of the season in their biggest game of the season. On a scale of 0 to 100, he was a 97.7. They beat Texas 37-31 in the Sugar Bowl. That was the second of the two semifinal games on New Year's evening and New Year's night. Two spectacular games. Um, I think Denton, the number one storyline coming out of the two games, for me anyway, was the performance of Michael Penix Jr., in part because we're thinking, I'm thinking, quarterback for Washington in the upcoming NFL draft. I was curious as to what that game did to his draft status. Uh, the latest Ryan Wilson uh CBS Sports mock draft which he put out yesterday has now he's been a fan of Pennix Jr but he's got Penix Jr now going 11th overall and as the fourth quarterback taken between behind Caleb Williams, Drake May, um and Jaden Daniels. Now he has a mock trade involving Washington moving from 2 to 1 to take Caleb Williams with the Patriots taking May number two overall. Um, actually, I think he's got the Patriots as the number two pick. Uh, however, it worked out with his mock trade. Um, but he's got Penix Jr. ahead of um, the next quarterback uh, he's got, uh, which would come in the second round, which would be um, uh, CJ McCarthy. Uh, so let's start with Penix and the second game. What did you think is, of his performance? Denton it, does a college football show for satellite radio, Sirius XM. What did you think of Penix in that game?
1: It was the best game he'd played in college, and he picked a really good time to play the best game that he'd played in college. He'd had a bunch of good ones, right? But this was an I, this was an iconic performance, and I think even though – so like you and I know what Washington was this season, and we watched a lot of the Pac-12 because it was the most fun and best league – in college football this year, but I think there was still a segment of the population that maybe was not as aware with how good he was, especially because the the back end of the regular season, he had struggled a little bit. But I think what people saw is what you and I had been seeing for a while, which is this guy delivers absolute dimes. Uh, like the windows that he was throwing into with the touch and anticipation, he's the best pocket passer that I've seen in college football in years, in years, and I don't think it's, Uh, uh, all that close, continually watching him do this. I mean, Kevin, there were a couple of throws. It's just a flick of the wrist and it's right on point. I mean, you you can't teach that kind of stuff. He just has a natural innate ability to deliver the ball where it needs to be. It was incredibly impressive.
0: By the way, he went beyond 4,500 passing yards in back-to-back seasons. He's the first quarterback to do that in college since Patrick Mahomes did it at Texas Tech. So, The game the other night, I think the part of his game the other night that I saw at a higher level than I've seen all season long was his manipulating and his staying alive in the pocket, his feel in the pocket to create more time with a step here, a step up here, a step to the sideways there. Um, because there was pressure, Texas's front four is an outstanding front four, uh, and they did a great job up front. But there was pressure, and he did a great job every single time, almost looking like literally like a Peyton, a left-handed version of Peyton Manning or Tom Brady's traditional pocket in the pocket passers, and doing what they did at the highest levels, which is create more time in the pocket. It's not something that a lot of quarterbacks can do, but he can do it. He did it. Um, it was impressive to see. You know, he's, he's a taller quarterback at 6'3", six, 6'3 three, six, three He plays tall with the vision. Um, you said something, and, and it was it, it, it's something that I think we've talked about at times when it's come to Penix. The, he throws the best deep ball, although Jaden Daniels is close, Denton. Yeah. Jaden Daniels throws an incredible deep he, ball.
1: He does a great deep ball, but Penix the the accuracy with his with all of his throws is unreal.
0: But the motion is a flick. It's really interesting. It, it generates, by the way, very good you know quick release numbers. But it's a flick of the wrist. The interesting thing with the flick of the wrist release is that what we've seen all year with Penix Jr. and we didn't see the other night. Is that he's been inaccurate on shorter throws, um, and the, you know, badly inaccurate at times on shorter throws in different games during the course of the year? Because we watched a lot of the Pac-12, we watched a lot of him, and not every game did he look like he looked uh, the other night. Um, here's a couple things I would say about him. The the concerns about him have been number one, the injuries. All right, he had two torn ACLs at Indiana. Number two is that he is playing on a team right now with two to three NFL wide receivers, all right, and yeah. and not only wide receivers, <laughs> one in particular who is going to be a first round pick guaranteed. Um, and you're playing teams in the Pac-12 that typically year in and year out, and even this year, are not super strong defensively. Um, Texas is not a super strong defensive team. He will face the best defense of any team he's faced since he's been the starting quarterback at Washington in Michigan on Monday night in the title game, who he faced, by the way, when he was the starting quarterback at Indiana um, for a couple of years. So I am interested to see how he does against Michigan. But it's the two concerns, the injury, right, Denton, the injuries, and then the fact that he's got – a group of lethal weapons at the college football level, but not just at the college football level. These guys are going to be pro-NFL uh, NFL receivers.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Roman Dunze is going to go, he might go top 12. Top 12. Um, top
0: 12. Polk's, Polk could potentially be a first-rounder at the end.
1: Yeah, Polk, Polk could be one of those uh, those late first-round steals, kind of similar, not directly to Justin Jefferson, but a guy that is picked late and then ends up having a really good, successful career. The one thing that I want to top that, that does worry me at least a little bit. Now, it's a fixable thing if you have the right amount of money, Kevin. But the one thing that worries me a little bit is he's played in the same variation or very similar variation of the offense he's playing in now for his entire college career. Kalen DeBoer was the offensive coordinator when he right. got there in 2019, yep. and his fingerprints were all over that Indiana offense even when he left, which is when Michael Penix in 2020 had his best season. So my my lone issue with Penix is that outside of the knee injury is – What would it look like if he comes to the NFL without Kalen DeBoer? Now, if we were looking directly at our franchise, head coaching vacancy going to come in a matter of days, new owner that might want to take a big swing. And the thing about Kalen DeBoer that I think separates him from other college football coaches, particularly like your Urban Myers and whoever, Kalen DeBoer is much more of uh, getting the most out of his players rather than like a talent aggregator. He's not ruling with an iron fist. He's just a really good ball coach. So that would be something that I'd be intrigued with, if he plays in a, a similar facet against Michigan that he did against Texas. They don't have to win the game, but if he if he if it looks like he can do it against a great defense versus what he's been doing against good defenses or average defenses, I would at least kick that around a little bit and say maybe they. If I'm Josh Harris, maybe I should take a swing at both of these two guys, and then I have a duo moving forward for my franchise.
0: What is Kalen DeBoer now? Is it eight and zero straight up wins as an underdog at Washington?
1: Um, he was uh the the number I saw was he'd been an underdog four times leading up to this game. So okay, now so it's five and zero. Yeah, five and zero outright.
0: Five yeah. and zero str- as a outright winner as an underdog. Yeah, and certainly disrespected against Oregon in the Pac-12 championship game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, no doubt about that. Um, look, I saw what all of you saw, and that was a guy that really can throw it and can throw it in... You know, the way he threw it the other night with bodies around him, maneuvering in the pocket, ball out on time. I'm just going to tell you, though, there have been accuracy issues at time with at times with him. Never with the deep ball. He has thrown, along with Jaden Daniels, the best deep ball of any of the college potential, you know, super high draft choices. I think it's going to be interesting. I think Monday night will say a lot about, um where Michael Penix Jr. ends up going in the draft. Is he does he bolt up the board and end up being a guy in consideration, you know, for those top three, top four, top five picks? Does he, you know, move up the board enough to be a first rounder? Because most most projections, most mocks had him end of first or second round. I saw some mocks that had him third or fourth round. And a lot of that was the concern over the injuries, and again, he's been playing with an elite group of wide receivers in a really good scheme against teams that haven't been good defensively um, for the most part. I mean, I think Utah was, I think Oregon was better defensively, and he shredded them in the Pac-12 championship game. Now, specific to the game, so I'm Penix blew me away the other night. There have been things about Penix Jr. that I've liked, but I've also spoken about the things that I have not liked. He has not been my top three. My top three are everybody, you know, at least now, in some order, Williams, May, Daniels, based on what the due diligence kind of comes back in terms of what these guys are like. Um, But I thought he was sensational too, uh, no doubt about it. The game itself had a very fascinating ending and i talked a little bit about this with tommy on my podcast yesterday so this this was one of those games you were watching you knew it was going to be a, a, the mistakes if if one team ended up with you know too many mistakes it was going to cost them the game and texas had two turnovers in back to back possessions in the second half and that completely cost them any opportunity really in the at the moment anyway, to really win the game. Now, they had a chance at the end, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, but this went from, you know, 7-0, 7-7, 14-7, 14-14, 21-14, 21-21, back and forth, and that's the way it looked like it was going to continue unless teams lost possessions to turnovers, which Texas did on two possessions in the second half, and they were devastating because that they then fell behind by more than one score. But they got it back to 37 31. Um, they held Washington to a field goal. Uh, actually, Washington's la- two drives before their final drives were not Penix Jr.'s best drives, in fact. It, it actually, you saw some of the inaccuracies on those final two drives. But anyway, he had played brilliantly to that point. But to me, I wanted to just focus on what. Washington did and what Kalen DeBoer chose to do, which I thought was a major mistake at the end of the game. So Texas kicks a field goal with a minute nine left in the game, holding two timeouts to make the score 37 31. Now, with a minute nine to go and only two timeouts, you have to go on sidekick because if you kick it deep and you get a three and out, there's still going to be you know, like 15 seconds, 20 seconds left needing a touchdown. So you got to try to get an onside kick. They did not get the onside kick, and Washington recovered at the Texas 44-yard line. A minute nine left. By the way, I don't know if anybody else picked up on this. I did. I had Texas, by the way. Uh, I really like Texas, and Denton really liked Washington. Um, he got that one right. Uh, he, he's gotten a lot of them right this year. Um, but um, i uh i really like texas so my only hope was like a touchdown a missed extra point and we saw a lot of special teams gaffes in both of those games um on sat on uh, on monday night but washington 100% should have taken not necessarily three knees but they should have never ever put the ball at risk they took uh, what i was going to say is th- they recovered the onside kick denton The kick took place with a minute nine to go, and not one second came off the clock on the onside kick. I know it was recovered immediately, but the touch itself has to knock one second off the clock. But that's a really tiny nit to pick on on, on the clock operator. Anyway, here's Washington with the ball at the Texas 44-yard line holding a six-point lead. Texas has two timeouts left. And you just have to be better at the math. If you're a head coach in this situation, you snap the ball to Michael Penix, you have him roll left and slide down, make Texas burn one timeout. You do the same thing on second down, make Texas burn their second timeout. Worst case, you're going to burn three seconds on each play. You might burn four or five, depending on how quickly Texas's tacklers get to them. But if you just take worst case and say they burn six seconds off the clock. Then on their third down play, which now Texas had no, has no timeouts, you do the same thing. The play, let's just say, ends at a minute. And then at 20 seconds, you're punting the football back to Texas. After the punt, Texas is getting the ball with 15 seconds to go, 80 yards or more to move the football with no timeouts. You do not hand the ball off because what happened was they didn't fumble, which is always a possibility and the thing you want to avoid the most. But what happened was something that was very rare. Dylan Johnson, who, by the way, is an NFL running back, they also have an NFL running back on their roster, who was banged up during the game, got injured, seriously injured on his third down run and handoff. And in college, in the final two minutes, when there's an injury, the clock stops and doesn't start until the next play begins. So that play essentially gave Texas a third timeout. So that when Texas, after the punt, got the ball back, there were 41 seconds left. There should have been 14 or 15 seconds left. And not only that, they committed an interference penalty on the fair catch, which gave them 15 yards. Texas had four opportunities at the Washington 11-yard line in the final 15 seconds of the game to win the game, which would have been a miracle win. I love Kalen DeBoer as a coach, too, but that was a big mistake. Now, if they've got three timeouts, that's different. You're going for the first down. You're trying to end the game on offense, but knowing that they only had two, you can't Risk handing the ball off. And then what happened was flukish, certainly the injury, but a terrible job by Kalen DeBoer at the end of the game, which almost cost Washington the semifinal game and a potential championship chance when they were the better team all night long. Um, the first game, Denton. Really good football game. Really a good. lot of errors in the game. You know, the snappers, the the missed extra point, the punt fielding by Michigan, the the uh, Alabama center and the consistent bad snaps back to Milrow, but still a hell of a football game. And I still can't believe at the end of that game that they the guy they put back to field the punt for Michigan, <laughs> I still can't believe he fielded it A, inside his own five-yard line. He fielded it at the two-yard line. And then when he muffed it, it was an incredible job by him to pick up the ball and then stay in the field of play so that the game didn't end on a safety because it was so close to ending on a safety. Um, So there were some real – I mean, that's one of those in that particular situation – with Alabama punning there, look, Michigan still had a chance, but you had to let that ball go into the end zone. Uh, but give JJ McCarthy credit, down seven, he drove him down the field, tied the game, and then Blake Corum was obviously the star of Michigan's overtime drive. And that fourth down, you know, quarterback draw that Jalen Milroe had that got <laughs> stopped, you know, three and a half yards short of the end zone. It looked like a terrible call. What I don't know is, was there a check available on that play or not?
1: I, I because,
0: hope there was. <laughs> I felt badly for him because he's going to be the Heisman Trophy front runner going into next season, and he improved so much, and he is a big part of why Bama got to where they got. Um, it was a bad ending, even though I, you know, if you were a Bama fan, you wanted the ball in his hands at the end. But man, you know, there had to be something that he could have checked to, because that had no chance. The snap wasn't great either. What were your thoughts real quickly on the two games?
1: So there 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 were uh, two thoughts from that first one, right? One was validation because we finally got to see Michigan's defense dominate a good team. Everyone yeah. had been talking cuz you and I at least me in particular, I've been really high on Michigan this entire year, but the pushback has always been well they didn't play anybody, which to an extent was accurate, but if you look at their first like 8 weeks of the season, 7 8 weeks, it took them until October for somebody uh, to score twice against them. So as bad as teams are, the fact that they were just bludgeoning teams on a weekly basis was to me impressive. And we got to see them do it uh, against an Alabama team on the biggest stage, which I don't know if you've seen the ratings for this game, Kevin. It topped out at one point at 32 million. It averaged about 27, which oh for college God. football semi is massive. That's like a national championship well, that, number.
0: That That's got to be the most watched playoff game ever, right?
1: Uh yes yeah it, it well, I think actually I think there was one in the first year of the playoff that did slightly better numbers but it was mm-hmm. one of the one of the um, the two biggest ever. It was it was great. Well,
0: plus you had a competitive game too, right? And we've had some blowouts in semifinal games
1: with two two programs that garner a lot yeah, of interest of with Michigan and yeah. Alabama. This yep. to me was Nick Saban's best job coaching at Alabama. What Good Michigan point. was able to do in the first half was kind of expose the flaws of Jalen Milrow. He couldn't see pressure coming. He didn't know where it was coming from. And hot damn is Michigan's defensive front great at disguising and then getting to the quarterback what they did in the second half to make adjustments to stop dropping him back because he's been so good at throwing the deep ball no doubt dropping him back and said hey we're just going to let you kind of go out there and be a gamer and that got them back into the football game even though Saban didn't win they deserve a lot of credit for what they were able to do to make this close because Michigan to me felt like the better team from start to finish
0: so that's an interesting thing, and I, I wish I had mentioned it first because I, I, it was the first thought I had about this game and watching it because I was texting with actually Van Pelt during the game, and I said, if this weren't in the first half, I said, if this weren't Bama uh, on the other side, I would tell you that Michigan's going to win this game 45-10. to 10. They dominated the line of scrimmage in the first half of that game to a point in which the score at halftime 13-10 to was not reflective of how much better Michigan was in the first half. Michigan botched, muffed a punt, which led to the one Alabama touchdown. And they had sacked Milrow five times, I think, in the first half of that game. To your point, the adjustment of not dropping him back and then all of a sudden becoming more competitive at the line of scrimmage in the second half flipped the game. And then all of a sudden, Alabama was looking like they were the—you know—they took a seven-point lead in that game. Michigan could not move the football against Bama in the second half until it mattered. It was a—it was a really interesting game, but Michigan at the line of scrimmage defensively um, is going to be the Penix Jr. Uh, real test, and then. I don't see any way in which Washington, even though they've played better defensively here um, as as of late, I just don't see how Blake Corum doesn't go for a buck seventy five <laughs> in two touchdowns Monday he's, night.
1: He's so good; his vision is. Incre- Can I talk about one more thing though? Because this needs to be mentioned. Yeah. Michael Penix was great. I think the best throw of the weekend was that JJ McCarthy throw on that touchdown drive. The one I wish we could have gotten. They a got speed deflected. Check the one that got deflected but still maintained a perfect spiral i don't know yeah, if i've ever there seen there
0: was a that. little bit of luck involved in that
1: a little bit of luck but the fact that he i mean he he threaded that in there it looked like it lagged in a video game like it literally just rose up a little bit his receiver did a wonderful job reacting in real time but i've never seen a, a ball get tipped and not at least flutter a little bit
0: yeah, I'm not a J.J. McCarthy guy at the next level right now. And there's so much, you know, we just have to say this every time. We just don't know enough about these people, you know, and when and how smart and how dedicated and all the intangibles. Because apparently he's got all the intangibles. And you saw that a lot on that final drive. Now, he did nothing in the overtime drive. They handed the ball off to Blake Corum twice. Um, I just don't see him anywhere near the level of Daniels, May, Caleb, or even now Penix Jr. I, I, I you know he, you know he's listed at 6'3". He gets a lot of balls batted for a quarterback that's six three. I think he had three batted balls in that game. A couple of them nearly were picked off. Yeah. Um. But I know that the intangible stuff with McCarthy, the leadership, apparently, is off the charts. Um, we saw him, look, we saw him have to deliver down seven to keep their season alive, and he did. And by the way, that was a late hit on him on the sideline. I don't know how that didn't get flagged in yeah. that game. But what was interesting about that game overall is how they let those two teams play, man. I mean, that game was officiated in a way in which they were not going to get in the middle of anything. I think there were five total penalties called in the entire game that was it all right ben standing next kevin sheehan show the team 980 and the team 980.com we were just talking about one other part of the alabama michigan game ben standing is with us ben of course writes for the athletic you should subscribe you can follow ben on twitter at ben Standig. and you can listen to his podcast called standing room only you can get it wherever you get a, a podcast first of all happy new year to you
2: Likewise. Thank you uh, for that. Happy to, hear to you as well.
0: I don't want to bury the lead. Is there, uh, is there any news on the quarterback for the Cowboy game?
2: There is not. We uh, just came up from practice, and there was no real indication of anything, and Ron Rivera is going to talk to us when practice is over, and that's when they will make a formal announcement.
0: So what are you expecting?
2: Uh, Taylor Heineke? No, just kidding. Um <laughs> Sam Howe, I guess. I mean, I don't, you know, you know, if Brissett didn't play last week, I don't know what would be the point of going back to him now, considering, you know, Howe wasn't lights out, but he was, you know, he wasn't looking as panicked or as, uh, you know, pressing as he was in some of the earlier games. Certainly the Jake Fromm thing would be interesting on multiple levels, including, I would argue, is there any chance he could be the backup next year if, you know, things go a certain way or the third, you know, whatever. But, um, but, yeah, I would assume Sam Howell would be my best guess.
0: All right, I'm going to come back to Jake Fromm and just, you know, the idea of organizationally how they should be thinking about this game in a moment. But I mentioned, first of all, did you get a chance to watch both of the semifinal games on New Year's night? You did, because you were uh, texting me during you, – you bet both of the teams that I suggested that you bet, uh, Michigan and Texas, which means you were one and one like I was.
2: Yes, that is a, that is a fair assessment.
0: You also, for whatever reason, got confused and thought my smell test gave out Dallas when it gave out Detroit on Saturday night.
2: You got to. Uh, yeah, I was under the weather last week, and, uh, you know, it was a D. I knew it was, still, it was a team with a D. I, yeah. A so team there with go. A D. I, look, I, yeah. I got to take this. way is why you got to write these things down. You can't just right. try to memorize everything.
0: So Denton and I just talked about the two games, and I'll ask you about Penix Jr. here in a moment, but. Um, At the end of the Michigan-Alabama regulation, the punt that got muffed by the backup punt returner after the starting punt returner had muffed one earlier in the game, uh, first of all, it's an amazing play. To muff the punt, the ball goes towards the end zone. There are multiple Alabama (laughs) punt coverage guys bearing down on him, and he's able to pick it up, hold on to it, and stay at it for years in pro or college. What in God's name yard line was he doing putting McCarthy in shotgun and handing the ball off to Blake Corum on first down? He got out of the end zone. He gained a yard to the two-yard line, but that was a quick knee, and if there's no room to take a knee, you just snap it under center and have McCarthy push his way forward and fall down and take a knee. He snapped it into the end zone and handed the ball off to Blake Corum against Alabama. That would have been an unbelievable ending had they tackled him for safety. Now, he's really good, understood, but I wanted to say that was a crazy uh, way to end that game. Uh, What did you think of those two games in Penix Jr. in particular?
2: Yeah, no, those were, you know, that was the thing, I think, about the the playoffs this year and why, you know, the Florida State discussion and then, you know, Georgia – you know, I think it was arguably still the best team in the country, but they weren't going to be in the playoffs. And, you know, Ohio State only had one loss. But it really felt like a really – there were a lot of teams at the top, and you could have, you know, jumbled them up in any way and had justification for putting them in. It wasn't didn't feel like there was, like, one dominant uh, team. Uh, I, if I, I made an analogy on Twitter. If Alabama had won with that team, it would have felt like when that year that Duke won the national title with Kyle Singler as their best player. Like, against come on, Butler. This isn't the, yeah, this can't be the team. Come on. Um, but in terms of the other game, you know, there's definitely this vibe about Washington this year for sure. You know, when we were out there for the Seahawks game, I went to the um, a, a Washington-Utah uh, game. And, you know, that, that stadium was great. You could, feel the, you could feel something was brewing there. And, you know, as far as Penix, you know, the lefty thing is always weird. It always looks odd. And I think that always sort of <laughs> lowers the view on some of these guys. Um, and you know when I watched him that day in Washington, at their home game, I was like, "All right, look, I get it. I, I I see the intrigue." But you know he's kind of, you know, felt a little, uh, a little erratic. Felt felt like a little more of like a college quarterback than a guy I'm thinking in the first round. But, but that was not the case on um, uh, against uh, Texas. He was. I mean, the throws were just unbelievable. This constant pinpoint accuracy. He's obviously mobile as well. You know my sense was that he was sort of a early second round guy, and I guess and, and it's in part because he's had knee injuries, he's a bit older than some of these guys coming out, so there's some that that may not change regardless of the performance, but I think you now have to consider him somewhere around, I would think, unless like I said, the knee or some other factors just have scouts saying nah, no, that's he that's, that's too high.
0: The older thing with quarterbacks in the NFL, I don't personally understand at all. I mean, most of them don't hit their prime until late 20s, and the number of opt outs was disgraceful. Uh, they lost 63 to 3 to Georgia. Um, I did not, I thought the committee did what they were supposed to do. If you didn't like what the committee did, then change the criteria for the committee. And that's fair. That's fine. You know, a Power 5 team or moving forward, a Power 4 team that's undefeated, you know, should, should, should have been in regardless of the injuries. But the injuries were a factor, and they were supposed to be a factor. Or they were part of the criteria used to select Bama over Florida State. Florida State lost to Georgia 63-3. to It's the largest margin of, of victory in bowl history. They had a bunch of opt-outs, including Tate Rodemaker, the backup quarterback. Who didn't play in the ACC championship game, but played against Florida, and then Norville, the head coach afterwards, talked about the hurt, you know, the hurt, and you know, the the way it ended, and the way they were robbed, and guys just couldn't come off that hurt. Well, it's your job as the head coach to teach him some life lessons because you face adversity and you get robbed or rooked sometimes, at least in your own mind, and you don't quit. And I understand the opt-outs in these bowl games, but in their particular situation, as unique as it was, for all of those players to opt out, okay, whatever, quitting. But for the coach to acknowledge that it's because they were hurt and it was you know, not necessarily their fault that they lost by that m- many, enough of that. I mean, they belly ached. I mean, they were suing everybody or threatening to sue everybody. Everybody in that state was. They lost by sixty. Um. Anyway, Denton, Denton, what did you say about this on your show?
1: I, I didn't. Um, I didn't have a show this weekend.
0: Okay. Did, what did you think about that performance?
1: Um. Oh, oh sorry. Which one? That's all right. You weren't <laughs> listening. We'll move on. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I had someone. Someone came in here and talk, was talking. That's
0: fine. Um. Ben, I mean. Florida State the all, all of the the controversy over it. I don't know if I were the coach I would have said, "Guys, we got we we got to play this game. I need some of you to show up for this game. We can't quit, well, I, we can't bail, we can't use this as an excuse to get run out of the building." I don't know. Didn't yeah, didn't I, like the I look for that, Florida like, State personally.
2: Right, I think a lot of times like, you know, when you look at these still kinds of stories, do I think Florida State got screwed? Yeah, I, I I do. I understand why they put in Alabama, but okay, they got screwed. But like you said, you move on. Georgia arguably is well, not arguably. Georgia is one of the four best teams in the country. They didn't get in, and then they came out and won sixty three to three. So they got over there, anguish, pain, whatever you got. I know it's not the exact same thing, but you know they certainly certainly thought they could get there. But I also just think as like a society, we have this deal that like we see the immediate thing that sounds like is the primary issue, i.e. Florida State got screwed. And then everybody whines and belly aches and bemoans the situation so much that they go to the victim card and take a. for instance, the lot the Detroit lions here, did they get screwed by the refs with that two point conversion? Sure. But they tried to be cute. Yeah. It worked. It worked against them because they, you know, like why? Like, even if you're Dan Campbell's telling the refs in advance, what the play is, what it's not the ref's obligation. To help the Lions snooker the Cowboys. And then he's so emotional about it, he doesn't kick the extra point to go to overtime. Oh, my God, from the eight, eight
0: yard line.
2: Right. Like, what was that? Like, so, like, they easily, they still could have won the game. The game was not decided. I mean, yes, again, they got hosed, but the game wasn't decided because they didn't miss the subsequent two, it's because he didn't take the extra point. So, you know, and now, like, a few days later, we're starting to hear people go, well, you know, actually, Dot dot dot. So I think this is what happens. Just in Florida State's case, they, like you said, they, they didn't even get over it. In the Lions' case, you know they got to get back on the horse quick. They got a game this week, and then the playoffs are right there. So um, yeah, we'll see how they do.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that game because we hadn't talked about it, and I had it on my list of things to talk about. But real quickly, you know, the the Bo Nix had an incredibly disappointing Pac-12 championship game. And as a nine and a half point favorite, and all they had to do was win to get into the playoff, uh, it was very disappointing for him. Uh, he decided to play in the bowl game, and he threw five touchdown passes in their route of Liberty. I understand this opt-out conversation in recent years is a you know it's a complicated conversation, and I've gotten to the point where those that are expecting millions of dollars in a draft position standpoint, putting that at risk for a meaningless bowl game is is. I'm okay with it. I've, I've come to grips with that being okay. But in the Florida State case, you had a lot of players opting out that aren't going to be pros, and for the coach to say, "Well, we were hurt," I, there, you face adversity, you get robbed in your own mind, you come back and you fight and you compete, and that team laid down as an abs- as a program. I thought it was disgraceful the entire uh, that uh, that entire game. Now. You're hundred percent right, or at least I agree with you and, and that is Detroit was too cutesy with that, okay? And the NFL put out uh, this memo to all 32 teams, um, you know, telling people the player that's reporting as the eligible player has to completely and without any question, go to the referee and let him know. And Taylor Decker went over in that direction, but they were trying a lot of sleight of hand with Skipper and another player in that general area. And Skipper had already reported as eligible multiple times. So even though I think Brad Allen blew it because he got the wrong guy, I think Detroit deserve you know on some level put him in position to blow it by being too cute and trying to be too deceptive. And then to your point, Dan Campbell after the penalty, goes for two from the eight-yard line. The analytics can't possibly say that, it's, that the, it's the right thing to do to go for two down by one with, by the way, still, what, 23 seconds left in the game from the eight-yard line. He was so emotional and so pissed off. He's like, blank them. We're going to throw it into the end zone this time anyway. And they didn't. They threw a pick, but Micah Parsons was off sides. So they got a third shot and they missed. That game should have been in overtime after that play at 20-20. to No doubt. No doubt about that. Um, back to Washington. Is there any chance Jake Fromm starts the game Sunday? Uh, a. B, do you think there should be a chance that he starts the game Sunday?
2: Well, I'll answer B first and say yes. I think there should be a chance because, you know, this, we, we know what's at stake in terms of the draft pick. And, you know, I'm not saying, you know, Jake Fromm automatically means they get, they lose, but he obviously hasn't been playing for a reason. So, yeah, you're, their chances of losing increase. And, you know, I, I again, I don't really see any point in going to Brissett And the only argument for how would be just sort of staying status quo and give him another game, which is fine. But, you know, th- at this point, you know, The narrative is no longer about the season, about developing the young quarterback. The narrative is week 18 is about not winning. So, I mean, to me, this would be, I would go with, I would probably lean towards Fromm, but, you know, if they go with Hal, I I understand.
0: Do you think there's any, do you think the delay in announcing this might have something to do with, Josh Harris ownership and conversations with Ron Rivera about how to handle this game and maybe there's some disagreement over it I'm I I know nothing I'm just saying typically on Wednesdays you get the quarterback the starting quarterback to to talk before practice right
2: yeah not, not only that he comes into the media locker room which doesn't necessarily mean anything but another sort of difference I mean Things are getting a little bit different here <laughs> down the stretch of the season. Um, I, I, You know, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 as we know what happened last year, right? The obvious move was to start Sam Howe in the last game, and yet that wasn't the initial thought. They were going to go to Heineke, and we know how that turned out eventually. So, I don't know. Is it conceivable that <laughs> Rivera doesn't have, um, the, you know, ha- has has the right thought here? I mean, who knows? Maybe he's thinking they should go back to Bursette. I have no idea. Um, so. Look, I mean, like, you know, it, it's 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 commendable that Josh Harris didn't stick his nose into the situation all year because he was, you know, learning the league and, and everything else. This is now the moment to do it if you're going to do it. If there's any sense of anything happening that isn't just about, you know, for the uh, for the sake of the organization. And I would imagine, you know, do I think, like, say we see Kendall Fuller this week? Yeah, I would guess not. He didn't play last week. I'm not sure why the guy is a free agent is going to, he's had some knee issues. Why he's out there. Could there be other guys? You know, does John Allen play less? What about, you know, who knows? But, uh, yeah, this is a game where, hey, we want to see our young guys. <laughs> we want to see some of these guys that have been playing. And, obviously, in the back of everybody's heads should be, you know, we cannot justify winning this game uh, for the sake of the organization.
0: I mean, do you have any uh, thought that I, that I just expressed that maybe there's a bit of a – disagreement or tussle? Look, I I think this is where ownership has to actually be involved. Uh, We want to see We want to see a lot of young players. We want to see these players who haven't had an opportunity to play. Look, the the good news for Washington is they're playing a Dallas team that has to win. Uh, And they probably can't beat Dallas even if they tried their best organizationally to win the game. But things happen in the NFL, and there's a better chance of beating the Cowboys on Sunday than there was against the Niners, and they were competitive against the Niners in the first half. But I wonder... I mean, real quickly, because I've got thirty seconds. Any chance that maybe Ron saying in my final game, I'm gonna try to beat the Cowboys, and Josh no, Harris no. is saying, I'd like to see Jake Fromm and a bunch of backups and practice squad players play against the Cowboys. So we have some stuff to look at on tape when the season's over
2: right i don't have I don't know that there's like a disagreement per se. I can imagine Ron Rivera, by his nature, wants to win this games. He talked yesterday about this being a you know historic rivalry. And I, I would also add that, independent of who, what's going on, we know how these division games go. Yeah. You know, the, the year that exactly. the, the, the Washington was, like, undefeated, a the year they went to the Super Bowl, Dallas came in with, like oh, – Yeah, especially were, in this series. Were, yeah, yeah. Dallas came in with a terrible team, but like I think it was like a rookie Trey Aikman and one or whatever. So, yeah, uh, anything can happen. So, yes, yeah, so you have to be cautious of, of that aspect.
0: All right. Um, I will talk to you on Friday. Thanks. See man. Uh, Ben Standing, everybody. We are done for the day. Busy day. We covered a lot of things and didn't get to some of those things. And some of the things we didn't get to, we'll get to tomorrow. So join us tomorrow at 10 a.m. But stay tuned. Up next, Chris and Doc. It's been the Kevin Sheehan Show on the Team 980 and the Team980.com.